Well, it is very appropriate to pray that, to sing that as a prayer that God would speak to us, and he does that uh, through his word. And so we have the joy of coming to his word for him to speak to our hearts again today. Uh, In the portion of his word we know is John chapter 20, John chapter 20. I was reminded recently uh, at a staff meeting that I have preached longer from the gospel of John than from any other book that we have studied here at Twin City Bible Church uh, the last 16 years. Uh, This month completes four years in John, which means one-fourth of my time here has been spent in this one book. More specifically, I actually checked it out. Today is sermon number 138, just in case you were wondering. Well, I am very glad, actually, that we have spent this much time in a book that focuses on Christ because that focus has truly been much-needed food for my own soul. Today, we come to the completion of the main material of the book. Just to remind you, chapter 1 essentially was a prologue, as it's called, which served as an introduction uh, to the book. There is a final chapter to come, chapter 21, which is called the epilogue of the book. It actually serves to wrap up some loose ends, if you will. So chapter 20 is the last chapter of the main body of material in the Gospel of John. So just a quick review of what we have already uh, studied in this chapter. After the uh, risen Jesus revealed himself to Mary Magdalene, you'll remember that scene outside the garden tomb, he then miraculously uh, materialized in the locked room Uh, where the disciples and some other followers were hiding out. There, Jesus showed them his crucifixion wounds. And in addition, uh, we saw that he both pronounced a blessing upon them of peace, and then he performed that unusual symbolic act that reminded them that the Holy Spirit would indeed soon be given to them, to empower them uh, for the gospel mission. However, there was one disciple missing when all of that happened. And I don't mean Judas. He was missing as well, of course, since he had killed himself after betraying Jesus. I'm talking about another disciple who was missing, Thomas. He missed Jesus' appearance in that locked room early on Sunday morning. But Thomas did show up later that day. So now John turns his attention to him in chapter 20. Now, we don't know much, uh, as much about Thomas, you could say, as we do about some of the more prominent uh, of the disciples. But for centuries of church history, Thomas has been known a certain way, right, as doubting Thomas. I submit that that's not necessarily the most accurate way to understand him. Now, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, only briefly uh, mention Thomas, but uh, therefore most of the details about who he is and details about his character really come from the book that we're studying, John's Gospel. 
And based on the little evidence that we do have there, Thomas, we can conclude, I think rightly so, that Thomas was a determined uh, disciple. He was a loyal disciple, yet also a pessimistic follower of Jesus. He was a man who was courageous, and yet he was also prone to be fatalistic and even gloomy and melancholy. Now, that picture is confirmed by his refusal to believe the reports of Jesus's resurrection. Why? Well, for Thomas, uh, the crucifixion affected him deeply. It represented uh, the loss of all hope. So perhaps the label sorrowful Thomas is more accurate. But let's be careful not to criticize him as if he was the only disciple who struggled believing that Jesus had been raised from the dead. The reality is that all the disciples failed to believe on Christ's resurrection at some point. So concerning Thomas, it's not completely accurate to say that he was a doubter. Instead, I like the way Richard Phillips puts it, Thomas was a, quote, determined disbeliever. In other words, Thomas was willing to believe, but he would only believe if certain conditions were met, as we will see. And this certainly makes the conclusion of John's gospel, the conclusion of the main body of material, quite interesting. I mean, think about it. It's interesting that John chose to conclude this glorious account of the life and the death and the resurrection and the ministry of Jesus to conclude all that with a focus on a gloomy, pessimistic disciple like Thomas. But that's what John did. We find him now turning to an event that's recorded nowhere else in Scripture. It's the Lord's personal ministry to Thomas. It's the ending of John chapter 20 now, verses 24 through 31. 24 through 31. We're going to walk through this together and note together five elements of this concluding event. Here's element number one, the heartbroken skeptic. The heartbroken skeptic. Verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with him when Jesus came. Now stop there for a moment. Notice that both the Aramaic and the Greek uh, names are given for this disciple, Thomas, but also Didymus. Didymus, though, was actually more of a nickname. It means twin. So that tells us something about Thomas. He had a twin. It's just that we don't know anything about that other uh, brother. He's nowhere mentioned in Scripture. But he did exist. Now, as already stated, Thomas was the eternal pessimist in ways. He first appears in John's Gospel, not here, but back in chapter 11 in connection with the story of uh, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Uh, the disciples were absolutely astounded Uh, there in chapter 11, that Jesus was actually planning to leave that area where that miracle happened and return to the vicinity of Jerusalem. They were astounded because that's where the Jews had already tried to kill Jesus. So you find this in John chapter 11, verse 8. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, 
the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there once again? Doesn't make any sense. This is not going to end well, Jesus. Well, Thomas was a pessimistic kind of guy, but we find that he was also a courageous man. In chapter 11, verse 16, we find that Thomas went on to say this. Therefore, Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. So even though he thought the situation was a dangerous situation, he nonetheless was willing to lay down his life on the line for the Lord. He loved Jesus deeply and was loyal to him. Now, we don't know, fast forward back to our text, we don't know for certain why Thomas was not there on that Sunday morning, the first Resurrection Sunday. We don't know why he wasn't gathered with the other followers there when Jesus appeared the first time. But based on the little info that we do have of him, it would not be far-fetched to think that Thomas was heartbroken, heartbroken over the death of the one he loved so deeply. He just may not have been in much of a socializing mood. Now, I know you've never experienced anything like that, not being in a socializing mood. But it was true of Thomas. Perhaps that's why he was not there. He just decided it seemed best for him to be alone that morning. But he eventually did show up on that same day, but in the evening, the first resurrection Sunday evening. And when he did, the others were very excited to tell him what had happened about Jesus' appearance. That's verse 25. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But this is sorrowful Thomas. He would have none of it. And here is his heartbroken, skeptical response, verse 25. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A determined disbeliever. Now we should keep in mind that the other ten also had scoffed at the initial reports of the resurrection. It wasn't just Thomas. Mark chapter 16, verse 11. When they, the group, heard that he was alive, it says they refused to believe it. Luke 24, verse 11. But the words, in other words, about Jesus being alive, the words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. So it wasn't just Thomas who struggled with that. And the disciples, all of them, had failed to even believe the Scriptures. The Scriptures that had predicted this would happen. Jesus shared some of that with them along the way, reminded them of that. John chapter 20, same chapter we in, look back at verse 9. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. But even though Thomas seems to be a very stubborn man in this. His stubbornness was no greater, really, than the other disciples. What seems to be true is that his sorrow was deeper, perhaps greater. So he demanded something, an unmistakable sign, something that was very personal, something that would be concrete evidence to him. That was the only way he would believe that the person that he knew had been killed 
had somehow indeed been raised from the dead. The heartbroken skeptic. Well, a whole week went by, and again, the group was gathered together behind locked doors again, which brings us to element number two, the gentle Savior. The gentle Savior. Verse 26. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Now, this is one week later. This is the Jewish pattern of how they counted days. Eight days here refers to the following Sunday, the next resurrection Sunday. And once again, locked doors meant absolutely nothing to the glorified Jesus. Verse 26, Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. So here we have Jesus once again materializing miraculously in their midst, essentially creating a a, a replay, a virtual replay of the previous week's appearance. But this time, Jesus had one of those disciples on his mind, the one who had been missing before, Thomas. He singles out Thomas, and here's what Jesus said, verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here your hand and put it in my side. You have to understand what's going on here. This is the pastoral heart of Jesus. The Lord gently met Thomas at the very point of his weakness. Notice what's missing. There's no rebuke. There's no critical spirit here. There's a lot of patient compassion on Jesus' part. And he gave Thomas the very empirical proof that he had demanded. I love J.C. Ryle's comment on this. It's hard to imagine anything more tiresome and provoking than the conduct of Thomas, but it is impossible to imagine anything more patient and compassionate than our Lord's treatment of this weak disciple. He deals with him according to his weakness, like a gentle nurse dealing with a froward child. What a scene. By the way, we don't know if Thomas actually did choose to reach out and touch those wounds, those marks in Jesus' hand and side. The overall impression given, though, is in the text here, is that it was just the sight of Jesus enough that proved sufficient for him. Thomas was overcome in that moment with awe and reverence in the light of this this evidence, the irrefutable evidence of this person standing before him, talking to him. That's what it took for his melancholy and the skepticism to just dissolve. Notice the last clause, though, of verse 27, something Jesus said. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. You could translate that this way, and I really think this is probably a more clear way to translate it. Jesus said, do not be an unbeliever, but a believer. Now, up to this point, Thomas had loved Jesus. He had shown himself to be a loyal disciple of Jesus so far as he understood him. But there was something missing in his understanding and his faith. But now he's convinced. And now that he's convinced, what Thomas said as a result is one of the great statements of faith anywhere in the New Testament. And that leads us to element number three, 
the profound confession. The profound confession. Verse 28, Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. This is perhaps the greatest confession of any of the apostles. D.A. Carson makes this comment. The most unyielding skeptic bequeathed to us the most profound confession. It's rivaled only by one other confession in the New Testament, Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah. Remember that? In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asking them, whom do the people say that I am? Finally, Peter, who do you say that I am? Matthew 16, verse 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. A great confession. The only one that even close comes close to rivaling what Thomas said here. So let's examine Thomas's confession in more detail. In it, we find that he professes two very vital terms that every person must also likewise embrace if their faith is true saving faith. First of all, he recognized and confessed the lordship of Christ. The lordship of Christ. He exclaimed, my Lord. Now, don't misunderstand this. He did not do what I hear and have heard for many years, uh, people telling others what they need to do to be saved or to grow in their Christian life. They'll say, you need to make Jesus Lord of your life. People give that in their testimony sometimes. I came to Christ as Savior when I was a child, but in college, I made him the Lord of my life. Listen, you don't make Jesus the Lord. Thomas did not make Jesus Lord. He was confessing what is already true, that Jesus is Lord. But nevertheless, to make a profession like this meant that Thomas understood that this includes committing himself wholly to Jesus, not just for salvation. It means committing yourself to him for obedience, for worship of him. Listen, this is a theme that's repeated many times in the New Testament, the Lordship of Christ. Let me just give you a sampling of some. A very familiar one, Romans 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22, I think some of the most sobering words in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 16, 22. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Philippians 2, that great section in Philippians where uh, Paul uh, presents the, the truth about Jesus that he was eternally in heaven, but he did not regard equality uh, in the Godhead as something to be grasped, but he but he set aside the, the glory of that and the experience of the glory of that in heaven and the prerogatives that go along with being God. And he humbled himself and came to earth and took upon human nature, humbled himself even to the, to the humiliation of a death on a cross. Here's what Philippians 2, 10 and 11 says. Cause of all that, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, some wrongly do 
teach that you can look to Jesus in two different phases of your life. You can look to him as Savior while withholding this understanding that he is the Lord, withholding any kind of of a level of commitment that I'm going to follow him as the master of my life. You can't separate those two, Savior and Lord. Genuine faith in Christ demands a self-surrender to him as sovereign Lord. Thomas professed the lordship of Christ. There's another term here. Second, Thomas professed the deity of Christ. My God. So take those two together. My Lord, my God. Thomas's confession is nothing less than the clear and sincere profession of who Jesus Christ really is. It was an accurate confession, a genuine confession, a profound confession. But even though all that's true of what he said, the Lord went on to point out that Thomas's faith was not as good as it was, is not as notable as the faith of some others. What others? Those who would believe in the future throughout the annals of church history, including today and the future, all of those who would believe in the future, but without demanding the kind of evidence given to Thomas. The fourth element, the enduring promise. The enduring promise, verse 29. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Now, the New American Standard that I'm reading translates that as a question. Some other translations do. It's actually better translated as a statement, same words. It's a confirmation of Thomas's faith. It's really something like this, a statement, because you have seen me, you have believed. That's good. He's like all the witnesses of the resurrection at that time. They saw. They believed. But there would later be many countless numbers from our perspective who would not have access to that kind of of concrete physical evidence that Thomas had, the other disciples had, and yet they would still believe. So verse 29 continues, Blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. And he puts it in the form, did not there. He's wrapping everything up in one unit, everything about the future, as if it's done. From God's perspective, it is. Blessed are those who don't see, and yet they believe. Listen, there are people who try to make claims that they've seen Jesus in in a vision, or they've talked to him and so forth. Don't believe any of that. No one can see Jesus. So how do people believe? Verse 29 continues. They're blessed. You know what blessed does here? It makes it into what we know as as a beatitude. Now, we think of the Beatitudes, we think of Matthew 5, all those Beatitudes, when Jesus preached that great sermon, blessed are the poor in spirit, you know, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed or blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they'll be filled. Blessed are the pure in heart, they'll see God, and so on. This is like that. It's a beatitude, and there are two of these beatitudes in the Gospel of John. We saw one way back in John chapter 13, verse 17. If you know these things, Jesus said, you're blessed, blessed if you do them. That term blessed here and in John 13, in these two passages in John, 
are not simply declaring that those who meet whatever conditions are, that are being discussed, those who meet those conditions are somehow finally happy. It's not a superficial happiness here. The point of this term is that those who meet whatever conditions are being discussed are actually approved by God, even accepted by God. So in our verse 29, Jesus is saying that many would come to express saving faith. It's a promise that's, that's enduring throughout the centuries, and they'll be accepted by God even without seeing the kind of tangible evidence given to Thomas. After all, Jesus was saying this right before he was about to ascend to his Father. He ascended to heaven, and he's been there ever since. It's where he is today, ruling and reigning over all things in a glorified body. So it's been impossible for people to see him. So what was true for those who came to believe after the ascension in those early days of the church is just as true today. You see, this is not a statement that means our faith is less than Thomas's because they had all that evidence. No, it's not that our faith is diminished. It's not even the idea that our joy is reduced in some way. It's just the reality of the situation. Now, Peter was there. So what did Peter write years later? 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, he writes to those Christians. You haven't seen him. I have. He knew that. But you haven't. And yet you love him. And though you do not see him now, but you believe in him. Because of that, he says, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. He goes on in verse 9 to says, because the outcome of that kind of believing faith is the salvation of your souls. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Paul penned these words, we walk by faith, not by sight. Now, a legitimate question is how? How do people come to faith without seeing Jesus the way the disciples did? Well, in short, it's the work of the Holy Spirit in a person's heart. That spirit that was promised to come came on the day of Pentecost, on that beginning of church history. And from that moment on, everyone who comes to saving faith in receives the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of God who bestows faith in the heart so that a person can believe. And the Spirit uses something in that process to do that. And it's the truth that is recorded in Scripture. The Spirit uses truth to bring about that belief. And when Spirit does that, the Spirit does that in someone's heart and they believe, they end up articulating from their heart at least the same confession that Thomas made. As the next two verses, the last two verses imply, that brings us to our fifth element, the timeless message. The timeless message. Verse 30. It's John writing now to conclude the, the main body of the book. He writes, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. That little particle, therefore, connects these last two verses to what we've just walked through, what preceded. In other words, here in the last two verses, we're going to answer the question, how? 
how others in the future would come to believe and, and come to make the same saving confession. And as well, we're going to find the summary statement of why John even wrote this book, along with some insight into why John selected the particular material that he did to include in the book. It's all here. Let's start with what John focused on as he wrote. Notice that he says it's the signs. He says many other signs Jesus performed. That's what John has been focusing on in this book, in the main body of the material, after the prologue to where we are now, the signs. The signs, you'll remember, we discussed that, were public miracles that Jesus did for the purpose of proving, attesting to his deity. The signs included, that John included, I'll just rehearse them for you, back in chapter 2 the turning of the water into wine at the wedding of Cana, at Cana. Chapter 4, the healing of the official son. Chapter 5, the healing of the paralytic by the pool. Chapter 6, the miraculous feeding of the 5,000. Also in chapter 6, Jesus walking on the water. Chapter 9, he gave sight to that blind, that man born blind from birth. In chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus from the grave. Those are the signs John chose to include in his account of the gospel message. And we could say that in a category all their own, we should also mention the ultimate signs pointing to Jesus' deity and his saving power, his death, and his resurrection. These were the signs that John selected. And he says these selected signs were only a small portion of the miracles that Jesus performed. But nevertheless, these are sufficient to call sinners to confess faith in Christ and be saved, which is made clear in verse 31. He writes, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Let's note some realities here that are confirmed even in this last verse. We, we see something confirmed here, something very important, and that is the heart of saving faith. Once again, John takes pains in making clear what is at the heart of saving faith. Saving faith includes trusting in the person and the work of Jesus. The object of saving faith is Jesus Christ himself. We're not saved by merely mentally believing that certain doctrines are truth, though doctrines are important. We're certainly not saved by trusting in the church to get us to heaven. We're not saved by trusting in our own religious actions and our own good deeds. We are saved only by responding in faith to the biblical testimony about Jesus. We're trusting and yielding our lives to him. And to trust that way, look how John says it now, it's believing that Jesus is the Son of God. The Son of God. That points to his unique relationship to the Father that Jesus has been talking about all along. And that points to his deity. Just as Thomas confessed, and this also includes belief that Jesus is the Christ. He says that. He's the Christ. We forget this sometimes, that Christ is not part of his name. You know, Jesus was his first name and Christ was his last name or something. 
I think people think that. I admit many times I use Christ as his name. But technically, it's a title. He's Jesus, the Christ, the Christos. That's the Greek version of the Hebrew term that's translated Messiah, which means anointed one. Jesus is the one promised in the Old Testament, the one who would come, the long-awaited Messiah, the one fulfilling all the saving expectation of God's people in the Old Testament. More specifically, we don't have time to do a survey of the Old Testament, but let me just summarize in a brief way what the long-awaited Messiah represented. He was fulfilling three offices that are highlighted in the Old Testament, offices that were always pointing forward to Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the offices of prophet, priest, and king. He fulfilled the office of the prophet. The prophet was the one who would reveal the truth about God to people. Jesus is the ultimate, complete prophet. John 1, verse 1, is the way the gospel began. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He's the Word, the revealer of God, the prophet. Jesus is the one who fulfills the Old Testament office of priest. The priests were the ones who, through their sacrifices and offerings, would bring people into God's presence so they could worship him and serve him. So what did John the Baptist say when he saw Jesus coming to him? Back in John chapter 1, verse 29, Behold, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one who's the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus, by his own life and death, fulfilled that office of priest to bring people to have access to God in the office of king. He is the anointed king. The Old Testament kings were those who would rule over God's people on God's behalf. Likewise, Jesus is the king. He has the right to rule over his people. He has the power to do it. And that right was revealed in his sovereignty, his power over sickness and blindness and death. So again, these three anointed offices all found their fulfillment in Jesus, the Christ. He perfectly and eternally fills those roles so that people can be saved. It confirms the very object of saving faith here is Jesus himself, the Christ, the Son of God. This this verse confirms another reality. It's the reality of what the result of saving faith is. We see that here. Scripture makes a promise here that for those who believe, the result is, notice what John says, life in his name. This life means eternal life. And that includes the spiritual life that we experience now, and it includes the life that we'll enjoy in heaven forever. Essentially, saying life in his name or eternal life equates to salvation. You have life in his name, salvation. Such an important theme in John. 17 times the phrase eternal life occurs, and then other times just the word life is used. Here's a smattering of these uses, and I I want to give them to you because they're just so glorious. John chapter 1, verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 3, verse 15. Whoever believes will in him 
have eternal life. John 3, 16, that most familiar verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 3 goes on to say this in verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son and their belief and obedience are two sides of the same coin. He who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. It's the opposite of life. John 6 verse 40. Everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. You know, John is writing this many, many years after Jesus said these things that night. He also wrote 1 John, the epistle of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. In 1 John 5, you find this theme again on John's mind. 1 John 5, 11, God has given us eternal life, and that life is in his Son. Verse 12, he who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Just one more from the Gospel of John, John 10, verse 10. Jesus himself said, this is why I came. John 10, 10, I, 10, 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That's the result of saving faith. The object is Jesus Christ himself and all that Scripture says that he is. Faith in him. And the result of that is eternal life. And lastly, this verse confirms then the very purpose for which John wrote all of this. The very purpose he wrote this book that we have been studying for four years. He says, so that people would come to express this same true saving faith in Christ. In a word, his purpose for writing was evangelism. Evangelism. Now, of course true believers who've already come to faith in Christ are also encouraged by everything written in this book. I said it earlier, this study has been food for my soul, much needed food for my soul. In fact, I want to give you some grammar about that little phrase in verse 31, that you may believe. It's in a form that refers both to coming to faith and then continuing in the faith so that you may believe and then live a life continuing to believe. Therefore, those who do know him, you love the story of Jesus. You love the account of his miracles and the signs and, and the words that he gave. If you love him, you, you grow in that love for him. If you've come to trust him, you grow in what it means to trust him even more by studying this book. So back to Jesus' statement to Thomas then about those who would not actually see Jesus face to face, the risen Lord, they can still come to saving faith because of this gospel. Truth. Truth that's been penned and put in Scripture. Inspired truth. This gospel. The other three writings of the gospel. The rest of Scripture. The Spirit of God uses what's been recorded, the truth, to bring about the regeneration, the giving life to a spiritually dead soul. He gives faith to God's sheep. That's why Paul loved preaching so much. Romans 10, verse 17. Listen, faith comes from hearing. 
not seeing. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. We say we do hear from the Lord. Speak to us, Lord. And we mean in his word. He he speaks to us. He whispers to us in a sense. He ministers to our hearts through his word. So what an encouragement this is to us today. We're blessed. Blessed are those. Even though they don't share Thomas's experience of sight there, but who because they read about Thomas's experience and the other things Jesus said and did come to share the same faith. Well, as noted, this is the end of the main body of the book. There remains another chapter, the epilogue. But Thomas's confession of faith with that, this gospel account of Jesus has essentially reached its completion. I want to leave you with some important items that I sure hope we didn't miss in our discussion of all this. As we have concluded this final section of the main body of the book, I hope we have not missed this. Number one, don't miss the compassion of Jesus here. Don't miss the compassion of Jesus. Again, in dealing with Thomas, we see Jesus' shepherd heart on display. The, the Lord very gently and lovingly and compassionately dealt with Thomas and spoke to him. You could say that he, he condescended to help rescue Thomas out of that sorrow and that skepticism and that pessimism. And that compassion displayed and how Jesus singled out Thomas is the same compassion that he still shows to each and every one of his people as the sympathetic high priest. Listen to the words of Hebrews 4 once again. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus was sympathizing with Thomas's weakness that night. But we have one, a high priest, who has been tempted in all things as we are. He understands, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Don't hang back. Don't stay back. Don't think that you're approaching it in fear. Draw near with confidence, boldness to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You're going to find him to be, if you go to him with whatever needs you have, you're going to find him to be the gentle, loving, compassionate Savior to all of his people today. And obviously, we ought to seek to be like him in all our interactions with others. Don't miss the compassion of Jesus here. Number two, don't miss this statement about the sufficiency of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture. Since people come to Christ now based upon the testimony of what's written in Scripture and not physically seeing Jesus, then we can have confidence here in the power of God's Word to bring His sheep to Himself for salvation. To put it more directly, the Bible is sufficient for us to use in evangelism. Now, I get it. We have conversations with people. We carry on conversation with them. That's a wonderful thing. But at the end of the day, it's not logical arguments or scientific arguments or philosophical arguments that are going to make a difference in someone. 
None of those will bring somebody to saving faith. Scripture is what we must proclaim. And just related to that, if you're a follower of Christ, Scripture is also continue, it continues to be sufficient for believers. For everything that we face, it's sufficient to help us deal with fear, anxiety, weakness, hopelessness, doubt, skepticism. The Word of God is sufficient for everything related to the inner man. Always has been, always will be. And you know what I find about the Bible? I, I find it to be remarkably, amazingly gracious. It's amazingly accommodating. Why? You actually find that in Scripture, it understands grief. It understands what pain is. It understands suffering. It understands weakness and failure. So when somebody is struggling, we ought to be alert to come alongside them and be compassionate and provide compassion and understanding, but then very carefully looking for the opportunity to give them the ultimate encouragement they need, even admonition at times, and that's going to come from Scripture. It is sufficient. Don't miss that. Number three, don't miss the personal nature of faith. We find this in the repeated pronoun that Thomas used, that possessive pronoun, my. My Lord, my God. Some have discounted the idea that Jesus is a personal Savior, and I've been asked about that. Is that right to say that he's, he's my personal Savior? I understand that there, there could be sort of a, a misunderstanding of what that means, and maybe the phrase could be abused or something, but at the end of the day, he is. Jesus certainly is our personal Savior because each person as an individual must come to make this confession to express this saving faith and to have a relationship with Jesus. So yes, in that sense, I'm very glad to say he is my Lord and my God. And lastly, don't miss this. Don't miss the simple content of a genuine testimony. The simple content of a genuine testimony. We give our testimonies in different venues. It might be in our baptism. People give their testimony. It could be at work. It could be in your family. We give our testimony to an individual. just want all of us to be reminded of something here. We need to be very simple and clear in that testimony. Do you know a testimony does not have to be the account of something miraculous, something earth-shaking? Something extravagant, something that when you're hearing it, you're thinking, man, I would love to get the movie rights to that story because I could make a lot of money on that one. Listen, your testimony just needs to be the confirmation that you heard the gospel and that you believed it. In a nutshell, I'll give you some counsel about baptism testimonies and everything else, every other testimony. People just need to hear you make the same confession Thomas made. He is my Lord and my God. I trust in him alone. That's a good testimony. And those who make that confession from the heart are blessed. I mean, what are the blessings that go along with this? Well, your sins are forgiven. You have the free gift of eternal life. You're accepted into God's family as one of his ch children. 
you, you have a new power now to, to live a life to his glory. You can please him. You have the power to be spiritually prosperous in your life, regardless of what's going on. Spiritually prosperous. Everything else may be caving in physically and financially, but spiritually you can prosper with the Spirit's help. You can be used by God as a witness to others with a simple testimony. What a blessing. What a blessing to know that someday our bodies are going to be raised and become a glorified body just as the resurrected body of Christ is. What a blessing to know that we're delivered from the judgment that is to come. Yes, blessed are those who believe, even though they haven't seen. All these blessings and more to those who make Thomas's confession that Jesus is their Lord and their God. They understand who he is. He's the Christ, the eternal Son of God. Do you confess that? Do you confess that Jesus is your Lord? And your God, that is the only way to have eternal life. You can't buy it. can't earn it. Jesus has done everything necessary to secure it for you. By his perfect life that he lived, his obedient death, by his resurrection from the dead, everything necessary to be done to secure eternal life for a believing sinner. Jesus did it. Come to him. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards said. What are you afraid of that you dare not venture your soul upon Christ? Are you afraid that he cannot save you? That he is not strong enough to conquer the enemies of your soul? Are you afraid that he will not be willing to stoop so low as to take any gracious notice of you? You know, like he did Thomas. What is there that you could desire that would be in a Savior that's not in Christ? What excellency is there wanting? What is there that is great or good? What is adorable or endearing? Or what can you think of that would be encouraging which is not found in the person of Christ? And the answer is clear. Nothing is missing in Him. Trust in Him. Call on him to be your Savior, and through faith in his name, you'll have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the glorious main body of this gospel that we've already studied. And we look forward to the epilogue, the final comments in chapter 21. But Lord, thank you for this picture of Jesus. Our souls need to be reminded of him, who he is and what he's done. We're so grateful that he is a compassionate Savior who condescends to show grace and mercy to those in need. May those who don't know him here, may this be the very day where they in their own heart humbly cry out to you, be merciful to me, a sinner, and save me. I follow you as the Lord of my life now. For those of us who know him, may these continual pictures of Jesus be some things that warm our souls and our hearts because we need that, Lord, continual reminders of the glory of our Savior. Thank you for that. In his name we pray. Amen.